Everyone else, if you want to take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. This week we're going to start in verse 22 there. So kids, you got to start that way. Everyone else, if you want to bring your Bible uh, or phone out, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. So we've been looking, we looked last week about what it is for God in his grace to rescue us from giving our lives to worthless things in order that we can give our lives to the one who is truly worthy. So he rescues us from giving our lives to worthless things in order that we can give ourselves to him who is truly worthy. When we think about rescue and what God does in redeeming us and saving us, that's kind of the vertical element. But one of the simplest pictures we have in Christianity to understand how God wants to work in our lives and it's simplistic, but, but never sell it off as cheesy because it's too important. The shape of the cross obviously has a vertical component and a horizontal component. You probably heard this in many different ways, many different times, but, but don't miss the significance of it. There's that vertical aspect of a relationship with God that we have been set free from giving ourselves to these worthless things to vertically have our relationship right with him. But we can't forget the horizontal aspect that when we are set free, when we know what it is to worship him, that has to impact our horizontal relationships, our relationships with one another, how we relate to one another in this world. And so that's what we're gonna look at this morning. So last week we talked about how God's rescue deals with our vertical relationship with him. This week it's how God's rescue in our life, and if you don't wanna use the word rescue, you can just use the church word salvation, how his salvation in our life impacts our relationships with one another. Next week, we have a unique opportunity because next week we're gonna have some uh, men with us from a ministry called Hope is Alive Ministry. Uh, Hope is Alive is a ministry focused on recovery from addiction. And these guys are gonna be here next week to tell you some of their testimony, to tell you some of their story of God's healing in their lives. Addiction in families inevitably impacts relationships. In fact, that's so simplistic, it even misses the depth of how hard that is. That if you've been in a family situation, you're in a family situation right now where addiction is a part of that situation, you know the pain that it causes. If that's your story, or you have friends, neighbors, coworkers, you know someone who struggles with that in their family or struggles with that in their life right now, next week will be a great opportunity to talk about how God's rescue in our lives impacts the healing that we need in times of addiction, in times of families being broken apart by that. So just know that next week we're gonna be focusing on that during, during our service. It'll be a worship service for sure, but those guys are gonna be here to help us during, during that time. All right, First Peter chapter one. Uh, we're gonna start in verse 22 and just read down through the, through the end of the chapter this morning. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Then verse 23 there says, For you have been born again, not of seed that is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. 
May God bless the reading of his word. So in 1967, as a part of the first global television link called Our World, the Beatles sang, All You Need Is Love. All You Need Is Love. These are profound lyrics. All You Need Is Love. Love. Love is all you need. Love, 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 love. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love, love is all you need. They obviously worked really hard on those lyrics. But don't miss the fact of the impact that that song had at that moment. And they wrote it because they were looking for something to draw people together. They were looking for something that couldn't miss the mark And when they needed that thing, they went to the idea of love. People who have no desire for religion, who have no spiritual leanings, they just still think the fact that love is the core of who we are as a people. You can talk to someone who's not a Christian, who doesn't believe the Bible, and you ask them, hey, what's the most important thing? What's the purpose of life even? They're probably going to come back to love. It's not surprising that here in this verse, Peter gets to the concept of love. I want to review really quickly what's happened in 1 Peter in this letter. 1 Peter begins by laying out the story of salvation. One of the clearest explanations you get for Christianity in the Bible is the beginning of 1 Peter. If you ever need a place to go just to kind of review the basics, the beginning of 1 Peter is a great place. It lays out this foundation of salvation. Then when you get to verse 13, he gives four commands or or four imperatives that finish out this chapter. So here's salvation. Here's what it is to experience God's rescue and redemption in our lives. And then he gives four commands. The first is that you would hope in God. If you've experienced salvation, then put your hope fully in God. The second is that you would be holy. The third we looked at last week is that we would appropriately live in fear, reverent worship of God. And then the fourth is that we would love. So when we hope fully in God, when we pursue holiness, when we appropriately fear him, the fourth command that comes out of salvation is that we would love one another. There's always a concern though is that you would say, man Owen, I'm pretty tired this morning. I've been in church for more years than you've been alive and you're going to tell me I'm supposed to love one another? You know, what, what's that? What I hope happens this morning through God's word is that your soul would be nourished as we think about the fact that love is not this general abstract idea. We talk about this with the word God, that people can use God and mean a ton of different things about it. Well, the word love is the same way. We can use the word love and it's the most general, generic, abstract, almost meaningless concept imaginable because it means so many different things. It means so many different things to so many different people. What we want to do this morning is to see what is the theological foundation? What is the biblical foundation of what it means to love one another? If we're truly called to love one another, how can we do that and why does it matter so much? Anytime that we talk about one of these commands in scripture, especially one like loving one another, we need to understand what's going on below the surface because that will provide the foundation for how we live out that command. So go back here to verse 22. The core command in verse 22 is just simply that we would love one another. 
This idea of one another here is reflected in 1 Peter because 1 Peter, as a book, has a very strong family language. It's very strong family language. It's very much about communal living, that we're in this together. So Peter is gonna have no idea of how to use love without using love in reference to a family and not a biological family, but a group of people who have been brought together in Christ as a family of faith, and so they're called to love one another. When we think about the phrase love one another, though, John chapter 13 is the backdrop for this. As Jesus is meeting with his disciples, John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now we realize it's not completely new because the people of God throughout the Old Testament were told to love, but it's made new because of who Jesus is and how he's working in their lives. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's how it becomes new because now they've seen love through Jesus. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There's an important point that's built into those verses. Um, the church, when you think about churches gathered together, you could use Emmaus or you could use any other church that you're a part of if you're visiting with us this morning. The church, though, oftentimes gets a bad rap because it's said to be completely inwardly focused. All they care, is about, care about is themselves. They just take care of one another. They don't do anything for the world around them. Now, we realize that that critique is often overblown. It's simply just not true, and we want it to be true that we are doing things for other people, that we are doing good things in the community, that we are caring for others, that we are loving our enemies even. All of those things are true biblically. But when you read across scripture, and it says to love and to do good, the primary emphasis, and hear me out because you're gonna think I'm the most stereotypical preacher ever, but hear me out on this. The primary nature of those commands is that they would be done for other Christians and they would be done in the context of the local church. Now, we've, we've missed that in some way because it's become only about us and not about others, and sure, that's a good critique, but, but don't miss out. When the Bible says to love, it's talking about loving other Christians, not solely under other Christians, but primarily. When the Bible talks about doing good, it's doing good to other Christians, not solely other Christians, but primarily other Christians, that that is where he's placed us that we are to love one another. Now, here's where this gets difficult. Oftentimes, it's easier to love people outside of your family or outside of your group than it is to love your own family. Um, if my kids do something that I don't think is right, I'm like, oh man, you, just, you get embarrassed, and you, you, you're like, come on kids, get it together. If somebody else's kids do something, it's just cute and funny. Like your kid, people, people tell me, don't you get distracted on stage when my kids are, I don't see your kids, your kids are wonderful, they're perfect all the time, they never do anything wrong, they're just cute, and now if it's my kids, I would be like, oh, I'd be up in arms. We have more trouble loving those closest to us oftentimes than we do loving other people. Sometimes, teenagers, it's easier to love your friends than it is to love your own family, Sometimes in church, it's easier to love people outside the church than it is to love people inside the church. There's good reasons why you would join another church. People come and join Emmaus, people leave Emmaus and go join other churches. There are very good reasons why you would do that. But one of the reasons you shouldn't do that 
is because you just can't, you refuse to love the people that God's placed around you. Be very careful about a feeling in your heart that says, I don't wanna love these people, so I'm gonna neglect them, I'm gonna go over here to these people over here. God has purposefully, for his glory and your good, placed people in your life who are hard to love. We wish that weren't the case. (laughs) You know what's even worse? You're that person for someone else. (laughs) I'm that person for someone else. You're that sanctifying agent for someone else just as they might be for you. Who is the one another in your life that you struggle to love? That you're like, why, Lord, did you place that person in my family, in my school, in my office, in my church? Because when it says to love one another, it means those people that Christ has placed around you and we're to actively love them. Be very careful about, I'm going to avoid loving this person because there's a good chance that God has placed them in your life on purpose. Be very careful in your family about saying, you know what? I just don't really like that person, so I'm going to avoid them. No, God has placed them there. Now, we've talked about this before. If it's a dangerous situation, if it's an abusive situation, absolutely get help. Absolutely get out of situation. We will help you through that. What we're not saying is okay is that we just abandon the situation because it gets hard to love. Jesus puts those people in our lives because our love needs to become visible. It needs to become concrete. 1 John chapter 4, it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. It's easy maybe sometimes to have that vertical relationship, that vertical love, harder to have the horizontal love. For if a person does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And we have this command from him that one who loves God must also love his brother. Now Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 gives us a very particular word about how we're to do this. So go back to verse 22. It says, in, in the uh, translation that I'm reading from, it says, fervently love one another. Some tra- translations will say earnestly. This word is used another time in 1 Peter, in chapter 4, verse 18, that we're to fervently love one another because love covers over a multitude of sins. If you look across the New Testament, this word fervently or earnestly is most often used in connection to prayer. It's a word that means two things. It means effort, you're, you're giving a lot of effort to this, but it also means endurance. And really, this is the primary meaning of the word. It's the idea of fervently, earnestly, I love you, and I continue to love you after I don't want to love you. It's a love that requires effort, and it's a love that keeps on loving even when we want that love sometimes to go away. We're like, oh, why do I have to keep doing that? He says to fervently love one another. Give effort to it and endure in it. So this idea comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7. If you've heard the 1 Corinthians 13 passage about love, there's all these descriptors of love. And then you get to verse 7, and it says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the type of love that really 
gets to know the other person doesn't stop just at face value that really presses beyond. It's the type of love that chooses to give the other person the benefit of the doubt to say, I'm gonna stick with you through this. It's the type of love that says, we're not gonna continue to bring up things from the past. We're gonna continue to move forward in this relationship. This type of love is the type of love that God shows us. And it's meant to show up in our marriages. It's meant to show up in our families. It's meant to show up in our friendships. It's meant to show up in church. And it's the type of love that says, even though the circumstances might be hard, even though there might be some friction, even though there might be something about this I don't like, I will fervently love one another. I'll give effort and I'll keep doing it even when it's hard. And then there's one more qualifier. So you're supposed to fervently love one another from the heart. And really, this may be the hardest part. (laughs) What this means is God says, love one another, the people I place around you, put some effort into it, keep going even if you don't feel like it, and do it because you want to, not because you're faking it. (laughs) Do it from the heart. Do it as something that's coming from the inside out. And you're like, you know what, I'm pretty good at faking love, but it doesn't always feel loving on the inside as it's trying to come out fervently toward that other person. How could that happen? How could I truly love someone fervently from the heart? Here's where the theological foundation comes in. Go back to the beginning of verse 22. It says, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls, Peter gives two theological supports, two theological foundations for how you can love someone fervently from the heart. And the first is, it's because you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls. Purified here is the word for cleansed. Uh, It's the fancy theological word sanctified or made holy. You've purified and it says your soul. So it's not just this outward cleansing, this outward purification. It's something that has happened internally. It's a word that's for something that's already been completed. You've already purified your souls. You've been made clean. You've been made right with God. How does that happen? Look at the end of verse 21. The end of verse 21 says, that God raised Christ from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. In the New Testament, there are three words that are grouped together a lot of times, faith, hope, and love. And so what Peter is doing is he ends verse 21 by talking about faith and hope. He goes into verse 22 and he starts talking about this purification. How'd that purification happen? It references back to that faith and hope you have in Christ. What are faith and hope always connected with in the New Testament? They're connected with love. Faith, hope that brings purification is the core, it's the foundation of being able to love and then love is the practical outcome of that. Why does this matter? It's because when you've been made right with God, when you have faith in God and hope in God and that vertical relationship is is secure, you don't have anything to prove. You're not going around trying to prove yourself to God, to prove yourself to other people. You've been set free. A purity of heart means a heart where that darkness and those toxins and all of that is being able to be moved to the side so that you're able 
to truly love someone. If we try to love someone fervently from the heart, but our heart has not been made right with God, it's always going to fall short of what scripture calls us to. The only way that we can truly love one another the way that Christ calls us to do that is if we've been made pure. But then he gives a very particular way that this is supposed to happen. It says in verse 22, it's by obedience to the truth that you've purified your souls. So does that mean that obedience is what saved me? No, not in the sense of doing a lot of good things and now God likes you. It's obedience to the truth in the sense that you've given yourself, you've submitted yourself fully to Christ. You've been obedient to the truth of the gospel. You've done what the gospel says. You've repented and believed. You put your faith and your hope in Christ. There's a couple of verses in 1 Peter that help make sense of this. Back in chapter one, well, we're in chapter one. Back at the beginning of chapter one in verse two, there's a couple of phrases there that makes sense. It talks about how according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but then by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So sanctifying is the same word for purifying down there in verse, in, in verse 22. You've been, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus and be sprinkled with his blood. So this idea of obeying Jesus, obeying the truth, is given here at the beginning of 1 Peter to show that it's something that can only happen by the power of God's Spirit. And then in John chapter 17, so this is moving to another book in the New Testament, John chapter 17, verse 17 says, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. So this is the idea that we have been made right with God through faith and hope in Christ. How do we know what it is to understand faith and hope in Christ? We understand it through the word of truth, through the gospel that has been preached to us. How do we know that this is what's being talked about in 1 Peter? Look down at verse 23. Here's where this part starts to come back together. In verse 23 it says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. This phrase, born again, was made famous in the mid-20th century with a lot of the revival preachers. Uh, Billy Graham would use this phrase a lot. It's something that we don't talk about as much anymore. But remember I said earlier that 1 Peter uses a lot of family language, that we've been brought into the family of God. Well, how do you find yourself in a family? you're born into that family, or sometimes you're adopted into that family. For the church, for God's people, the way you get into that family is that you are born again. You are made right with God through Jesus, and scripture says literally we are adopted into his family. This born again language is something that Peter uses earlier in the chapter. Go up back again to the beginning of chapter one here. So in 1 Peter, you may have to scroll up in your phone just a little bit to go back to the beginning of that chapter. But go back up to verse 3. It says, it uses that same phrase, born again, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, if you're using a print copy, if you put your finger on verse three, how are you born again? 
You're born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You go over to verse 23, how are you born again in verse 23? Well, it's of an imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. Verse three says you're born again through the resurrection. Verse 23 says you're born again through this imperishable seed, this living uh, and, and abiding word of God. How are both of those true at the same time? Let me show you. This is something I, I saw this last week that was fun for me, and this is the time that you would pretend that it's fun for you too because I thought it was really awesome. Verse 23 uses the phrase, it says you've been born again, not of a seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. The other place in the New Testament that you find seed and imperishable used together is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the famous resurrection chapter in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. So when Peter comes to verse 23 here and he says that you're born again, not a seed which is perishable but imperishable, he hasn't left resurrection behind in verse 3. He's carrying forward resurrection. He's just reconnecting it here with the work of Christ who is the word of God. And then it says at the end of that phrase in verse 23, it says, you've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. So living and enduring there are words that are, seem to be connected with the word, word. And I think I set a world record for using the word, word, <laughs> in the most times. If that did not make sense, let me try again. In verse 23, living and enduring are connected to word. When you look at it in the Greek, that's not the wrong way to say it. It, it, it works, but living and enduring are more connected with God. So it seems like it reads better through the word of the living and abiding God. These terms, living and abiding, are used of God in another place in the Bible, in the book of Daniel. And remember, it, well, you don't have to remember what I said last week. I don't remember what I said last week, but last week we talked about how 1 Peter is the New Testament example of Daniel. And Peter here is connected two words, living and abiding with God. And the other place you find this in the Bible is in the book of Daniel, chapter 6. I make a decree. This is actually when Nebuchadnezzar comes around. This is after the lion's den. Daniel's been rescued out of the lion's den. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion and, and his dominion shall be to the end. And then in verse 27, after this, it says, oh, I may not have put verse 27 up there. Oh, he delivers and rescues. Do you see where there's that same word that Peter uses again? He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So you come here, how are we made right with God? How are we born again? Verse three says it's through the resurrection. Verse 23 says it's through this imperishable seed, which we know is connected with the resurrection, and it's through the living and enduring word of God, 
which comes from a living and enduring God. And this actually brings up a controversy. How many of you know the name Andy Stanley? Does that name reference kind of mean anything? Okay, how many of you know the name Charles Stanley? Lots more hands go up. Charles Stanley has been a famous preacher in America for, for many years now. Uh, I grew up where my parents a lot of times would watch Charles Stanley on TV on the morning, in the morning before we would go to church. It's okay if you do that. Maybe don't tell the preacher that, that you did that. As a, as a preacher, you know, when someone says, man, that was a good sermon you preached this morning. I went, Can I tell you about the sermon that Charles Stanley preached this morning? You're just like, oh, so deflating. We're trying our best, and then you're like, I'll never be Charles Stanley or Matt Chandler or anybody like that. But uh, we, my parents, would watch, we'd watch Charles Stanley. Well, Charles Stanley had a son, a couple of sons, but one named Andy, who... I remember my dad first listening to Andy Stanley when he would fill in for his dad, and he was like, that guy's going to be good. Well, it turns out he was really, really good. Uh, he leads one of the largest churches in America, uh, but he also got in some hot water kind of this, this last week over a controversy about whether or not, and this is where it kind of comes around and becomes very practical for us, he got into controversy about whether or not our faith rests on the Bible, it's the Word of God, or whether our faith, faith rests on who Jesus is and what he did. And we don't necessarily have to say that our faith rests on the Bible because that's hard for people to grasp sometimes, but we can tell them about Jesus without having to say that our faith rests on the Bible. Much more complicated. He was misunderstood, mistranslated, and frankly, he just probably said something he shouldn't have said. But here's the point. We get into these controversies about does my faith rest on the Bible, or does my faith rest on who Jesus is and what Jesus did? Do you understand how those two have to go together? The answer is always yes. How do I know who Jesus is and what he did? Through the Bible. Do words on a page save me? No, Jesus does. But how do I know about Jesus? It's through the Bible. How does the Bible have power? It has power because it comes through Jesus. They're always meant to go together. In John chapter one, we find out that Jesus, when he became flesh, he was the word of God. The word of God, the Bible that we have, and the word of God, Jesus, who lived, died, rose again, are not in conflict with one another. They always go together because it's through Scripture that we experience the power and the truth of God. It's through Jesus that that power and truth of God comes to us so that we know what it is to worship him. Those are always meant to go together, and it's how we're able to know what it is to love one another. So that brings us to a caution, one caution that we have to deal with when we think about loving one another. Love and faith in God's word without action is dead. Love, as the Bible presents it, without action is always dead, just like faith without action is dead. The place this comes from is Titus chapter two. Titus chapter two, from 11 to 14 in that chapter of Titus two, it uses the same word that we found in 1 Peter for being rescued or redeemed. So we're rescued, according to 1 Peter, in order to love one another. Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us or to rescue us from every lawless deed and to purify, 
there's the same idea of, of purity that we saw in First Peter. For himself, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So when scripture speaks about us being rescued, and it speaks about our relationships with one another, we're to love one another fervently, and we're to do it through good deeds. Where's the best way we learn how to do that? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 25 and 20, or 24 and 25, says let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So you say, okay, I really, do, I really do have faith and hope in Christ. That's my story. I really do want to obey God's word. I want to love others, and I want to do good deeds. How, how can I learn to do that? How can I do that? You have to connect with the church. The local church is God's gracious gift to us to know what it is to love one another and do good deeds. Being a part of a Sunday school class, being a part of a small group Bible study, building friendships with people in the church, gathering together for corporate worship, even when it's not easy, even when we're exhausted, even when we're distracted, all of those components are God's gift to us to know what it is to love one another and do good deeds. So you're saying, I'm not supposed to love my people at work, I'm not supposed to do good things in the community. By all means do those, absolutely. But those are not the foundation for what it means to love and do good deeds. The foundation for that is found as we do that with one another within the church. I wanna give you one suggestion. I put two suggestions on the note, but we're gonna scrap the second one and come back to it another time. One suggestion as we get ready to wrap up this morning. Practice saying, and I know this is gonna sound like a counseling lesson, I don't mean it to sound that way, but, but practice saying, I love you and, not I love you but. So, here's the distinction there. With one of those you say, I love you, but I can't stand you. <laughs> I love you, and then the word but just cuts off the foundation of love there. I love you, but I can't stand you. I love you and extends the conversation. I love you and says, I love you and we're going to be in this together. I love you and I want to speak the truth to you. I love you and I want the best for you. I love you and, and I'm gonna stick with you even when I don't feel like it. Not I love you, but I love you and. Ephesians chapter four, verse 15 says, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. How will Emmaus grow to be a healthy church? How will your family grow to be a healthy family? How does your marriage become a healthy marriage? Speak the truth in love. You have to have the foundation of love. You have to love one another from a pure heart, not faking it, not doing it when it's easy, loving one another fervently, and you do it in love, always speaking the truth. I love you and says, I love you and I need to say this to you. Now, where does that become hard? That becomes hard if the person you're speaking to isn't really sure if you love them or not. 
Do you understand where that becomes a struggle? If you say, I love you and I need to speak the truth to you, and they doubt the first half of that, it's gonna be impossible to hear the second half of that. But if that person truly knows that you love them, if your spouse knows that you're in this with them as hard as it may be, if your kids know that you're for them and not against them, if those people in your Sunday school class know that you want the best for them, then you can say, I love you, and here's where we need to go next. Maturity in a relationship and in a church comes from love grounded in the salvation that God's given us through Christ and practiced as we do good for one another as we say, I love you, and. The Beatles, saying about love, 1960s, if you walked out on the street right now and you asked someone what's the purpose of life, it's probably gonna get back to loving one another pretty quickly. But I hope you've seen this morning what it is for us as followers of Jesus to truly love one another. And now comes the hard part where we actually have to put that in, into practice. As we get ready to wrap up our time, we're gonna end uh, by singing a song about love. If you just need to pray with someone next to you, if you wanna say, I want our family, I want our marriage, I want our friendship to be built on love, this is an opportunity to do that. If you need to repent and say, you know what, I've been trying to love, but it wasn't fervently and it wasn't from a pure heart, use this as a time to turn back to the Lord. However God's working in your life, we're gonna sing a song about love to remind us of how God wants to work in our lives. Let's pray as we wrap up. Father, we thank you for a reminder like this from your word that you've rescued us so that we are able to truly worship you. But that worship that we give you is not something that is supposed to be done privately or individually. It's supposed to be done publicly and with others. And the way we live out that worship is when we love one another and when we do good things for one another. God, thank you that Emmaus is known as a church that does good things in the community. But God, remind us from John 13 that people will truly know that we're your disciples if we love one another. God, I pray for those this morning in their family or their marriage or their friendships who are struggling with loving one another loving one another earnestly. God, give us the healing and the forgiveness and the hope that we need in those families and those relationships. And Father, may it all be built on the foundation of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.